0: Good afternoon, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Juan Carlos Hidalgo. I'm a policy analyst on Latin America at Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Brazil is arguably the most interesting country in Latin America, a continent-sized nation with a unique history of conquest and colonization, racial mixing, and mostly plotly upheavals such as the abolition of the monarchy and slavery. Brazil is not easy to understand even for those who closely follow Latin American affairs. As the great local composer Tom Jobbing once said, Brazil is not for beginners. One of the country's most defining characteristics is is inequality. In Brazil, spectacular displays of wealth coexist with barefaced poverty, making it one of the most unequal nations in the Americas. Interestingly, the massive disparity in incomes among Brazilians takes place not in a land dominated by the ruthless forces of laissez-faire liberalism, but one where government intervention in the economy is pervasive. According to the Economic Freedom of the World Report published by the Fraser Institute of Canada, Brazil ranks 118th among 157 nations on its level of economic liberalism. From the classical liberal perspective, inequality in and out of self, need not be seen as a serious social problem as long as the rules of the game are fair. That is, as long as the economic environment in a country facilitates opportunities for social mobility and self-improvement. However, as Alex Cuadros vividly describes in his, in his book, Brazilianers, the rules of the game are unfair in Brazil, and thus the end result, which is enormous inequality, isn't fair either. Alex points out that in Brazil, two of the oldest ways of getting rich are politics and public contracts. He dissects how, in various ways, the visible hand of the state is behind most of Brazil's biggest fortunes, which is the main lesson of Brazilianers. While much is made of the ideological divide between market liberalism and populist socialism in Latin America, Brazil presents a different picture the pervasiveness of state and chronic capitalism, which has been the par excellence economic model of Brazil for much of the last 70 years. At the heart of this economic model, known as developmentalism, are giant state-owned institutions, such as Petrobras and the National Bank of Economic and Social Development, BNDES. The latter, in particular, plays a major role in ultimately deciding who wins and who doesn't in Brazil. As the then chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission said in 2002, today there are only two ways that a Brazilian can become a big businessman. He can be born rich, or he can gain access to the BNDs. We're going to hear more about this and other topics from Alex shortly. we we'll are also here from João Augusto Castro de Neves from the Oratio Group, on how we should assess the economic and political crisis besieging Brazil right now. Is there room for hope and optimism, given how the country's political and judicial institutions are currently performing? That's certainly the biggest question lingering after the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff as president two weeks ago. Let's start with uh, Alex Quadros. He's a freelance writer with violence at the Atlantic, Bloomberg Businessweek, The New Yorker, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and the Washington Post. His first book is *Billionaires*, who was just published in July 2016. He grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. After graduating from Sarah Lawrence College, he worked for a while in book publishing in New York before moving to Bogota to become a journalist. In 2010, he moved to Sao Paulo, where he spent a couple of years covering billionaires as a full-time job at Bloomberg News. Please help me welcome Alex Cuadros.
1: Thanks. I'm just gonna get my water too. All right, well thanks so much for having me here uh, and Thanks so much to all of you for coming. Um, A lot of people ask me, uh, you know, why would you write a book about Brazilian billionaires? Uh, And it is kind of a strange topic. Uh, I was never independently interested in billionaires. Uh, I hadn't even honestly given the characters much thought before. Uh, When I first started writing for Bloomberg, I only vaguely connected the company Uh, to its billionaire owner, uh, Mike Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York. Uh, But I was living in Sao Paulo, working for Bloomberg, and Bloomberg decided to create a team of journalists that would exclusively cover the world's billionaires. And I took the job uh, because billionaires seemed like interesting characters. Uh, And probably the best example of these you know, really larger-than-life extreme characters uh, is a guy named Aiki Batista. And when I got to Brazil in 2010, he was Brazil's richest man, the world's eighth richest man, had a fortune of $30 billion. And if you can imagine a sort of parody of a South American billionaire playboy, he was basically it. Uh, he had a, uh, he'd married a former carnival queen and playboy cover girl. Uh, he loved to race speedboats, he was a champion speedboat racer. And he loved to show off his wealth. He would invite reporters to his sprawling mansion uh, in Rio, where he kept a Mercedes Benz SLR McLaren in the living room. Uh, And he was very proud of his, uh, it it wasn't exactly a wig, uh, but his $30,000 treatment that restored hair uh, to his balding head. Um, But Ike wasn't just a flashy character. Uh, He was also someone who really symbolized a special moment in Brazil. Uh, And when I got there in 2010, you know, the economy was booming. That year, GDP would grow by Uh, 7.5%. And, you know, it was a moment when people felt like Brazil was about to join the Club of Developed Nations. Uh, It had ridden this amazing boom in commodities prices, uh, thanks largely to The growth of the Chinese economy. And Ike's businesses uh, were all based on this commodities boom. And he built this $30 billion fortune in just a few years. Uh, I mean, it was really amazing. He came from, it seemed like he came from nowhere and all of a sudden was the country's richest man. Uh, But he started, he did a series of IPOs of companies that would tap into the natural resources that investors were most excited about. Uh, So he started a mining company uh, and said that this mining company is going to be the new Vale, which was Brazil's traditional mining giant. Uh, He started a uh, port company. He said, I'm gonna build a port that's gonna be a highway to China and a mega logistics complex where uh, Brazilian companies will uh, build the first Brazilian branded cars uh, and it'll be this mega industrial complex. Uh, His most important company, his biggest company was an oil company. Uh, And he decided to start this company after uh, Brazil discovered offshore Billions of barrels of oil, enough potentially to put the country uh, on the same footing as major oil powers like Kuwait, say. Uh, The detail about all of these companies he started is that none of them actually produced anything yet. Uh, They had no revenues. They had plans. He owned the rights to offshore oil fields. He owned the rights to iron ore deposits but he hadn't actually extracted any of it. Uh, but he was such an amazing salesman, and investors were so eager to, put, to find a way to invest in the Brazilian boom that they kind of you know, put aside any concerns they might have about whether these plans were actually viable. Uh, and his, all of his IPOs were record-breaking affairs, and uh, you know, the IPO for his oil company, there was demand for 10 times uh, the number of shares on offer. Now, what was interesting about Ike as a person was that he was very ambitious. He liked to say that he was going to be the world's richest man. And he had a deadline by 2015. He was going to be the world's richest man, um, but it wasn't in his mind. It wasn't just a personal ambition. Part of his dream was that he was going to help make Brazil into a modern superpower. Uh, and one time when I interviewed him, uh, he said to me, "You know, Brazilians have always admired the American dream." Uh, But now there's a Brazilian dream, and I happen to be the example of it. Uh, So it was amazing, you know, almost narcissism, but he he expressed it in a sort of selfless way, as if, you know, his his goal weren't to enrich himself, but to enrich his fellow Brazilians. Uh, And, you know, he was a really contradictory figure. He framed himself as a new kind of businessman in Brazil. Juan Carlos was talking about this old way of doing business in Brazil through government contacts and corruption, and he tried to frame himself as a more American-style entrepreneur who didn't need any help from anyone to get ahead, was a self-made man. Uh, The problem with this self-image is that it wasn't exactly true. Uh, His father had been a mining minister and had led Vale, uh, which used to be Brazil's state uh, mining giant. Uh, So he grew up in a world of rare privilege and connections. Uh, And in fact, these connections helped him get ahead in his early career as a young man getting into gold mining. The other hole in his narrative of himself was that In fact, he sought government help uh, whenever he could. He became a major campaign donor uh, to anyone who was in a position to help out his business. Uh, So in the state of Rio, where most of his businesses were based, he became a major campaign donor and got tax breaks and permits fast-tracked. And he also became a major donor to the Workers' Party, Uh, and to uh, the famous uh, President Lula, who was in office from 2003 to 2010. And partly as a result of this, he won the favor of the government, and uh, the State Development Bank, the BNDES, lent billions of dollars uh, to his companies. Uh, So, you know, it was an empire partly built on money from private investors, but really helped along by government money. And what was funny about this is that, you know, he would make fun of the old-style Brazilian businessman. He would say, you know, construction tycoons, these guys who, ta- who carry out public contracts, you know, they're afraid of risk. I'm the only real risk taker in the country. Um, Now, this criticism had some meat to it beyond its sort of self-serving aspect. The fact is that some of the biggest fortunes in Brazil were made thanks to public contracts, uh, if not outright corruption. And one of the things that I really loved about this job uh, that I had at Bloomberg, studying the richest families in Brazil, was I got to learn something of the history of how power works in Brazil. And these billionaire families now uh, who own and still own some of the country's largest construction companies, they managed to stay close to power and ensure access to government contracts by basically being friends with whoever happened to be in office. And it was something that it spanned left and right in Brazil. Uh, so for example, in the 1960s, there was a left-wing uh, president named João Goulart, and the construction companies got along very well with him. He was overthrown by a military coup in 1964. The construction companies continued to get along Uh, for the most part, very well with the generals who would then rule the country uh, for 21 years. Decades later, when the Workers' Party came to power with Lula, it was an ostensibly left-wing movement concerned with social justice and political equality, Uh, but it had a serious internal contradiction Uh, and a sort of pragmatic approach to power. And its leaders decided that, you know, if we're going to get things done in this country and if we're going to fund our political campaigns, we can't only ally ourselves uh, with the kind of people we might ordinarily consider their allies. So some of the same... uh, left-wing politicians who once uh, fought the military dictatorship, uh, for example, Juma Hussef, who became president in 2011, ended up making alliances with the same politicians and businessmen uh, who had gained a lot of power during that very same military dictatorship. Now, one thing that uh, you hear a lot of in the media coverage recently in Brazil about this corruption scandal involving Petrobras, uh, people describe it as the largest corruption scandal in Brazilian history. Um, And I think that may be true in absolute terms, uh, just because the economy is so much larger Um, there's more to steal. Uh, But corruption has been endemic in Brazil basically since forever. And it's something that is such a part of the culture that it's reflected in the language. You know, Eskimos have a lot of different words for snow. Uh, Brazilians have a lot of different words for corruption. We were kind of talking about this earlier. Uh, But there's falcatrua, maracutaia, uh, propina. There's uh, the jeitinho, which is your, your sort of little way around society's normal rules. Uh, there's a, a lovely world, uh, word, uh, pizza, that describes whenever a scandal uh, sort of dies away and no one rich or powerful suffers any consequences. Uh, and that was basically the rule in Brazil. Um, But what emerged in the past couple of years uh, as investigators started finally uncovering the sort of underside of the political system in Brazil uh, was this essentially rotten uh, system underneath uh, the surface of things. And I think something of a historical coincidence, all of this corruption started finally coming to light uh, in a big way just as the Brazilian economy started to uh, take a turn for the worse in 2014. Uh, And IQ Bachista was kind of a canary in the coal mine for this downturn in the Brazilian economy. All of a sudden, it became clear that what he had been selling didn't actually exist. His oil wells weren't going to produce what he said they were going to produce. He ran into all sorts of logistical problems with his mining company and his port and so on. And the reaction when all all of this started to become clear was amazingly fast. Uh, he had a fortune of $30 billion, and he lost almost all of it in uh, about a year and a half uh, and ceased to be a billionaire, and for a while was even known as a negative uh, billionaire uh, because he had so many debts. So to me, what's, what's interesting about the failure of Aiki Bachista and uh, the failure of uh, this model of economic development based on sweetheart contracts for friends of the state is that they, they actually illustrate two really different things. Uh, you know, On the one hand, you have a clear case of crony capitalism of the worst sort that distorts the incentives for, politicians in terms of the policies they're going to carry out, what they're going to choose to build, and so on. But Aiki Bachista's failure, you know, as much as he got support from the government, it was really a free market failure. It was a bubble, like we've seen so many times in the history of capitalism. And, you know, it was private investors who... Bet on him first, and who bet on him biggest, and it was actually the government in this case following uh, private investors and you know what this this illustrated to me uh, is the danger of having so much co- power concentrated in one person uh, is that Aiki Batista had a personal quest. He was after glory. He wanted to be the world's richest man. He showed off, I think, not so much because he was crass, I think, but because he, he loved attention and wanted to be loved. Uh, but his quest for personal glory became a liability for society at large. Uh, A lot of people lost their savings when his companies went bankrupt. Uh, A lot of banks had to mark down their loans when his companies couldn't pay back their debts. Um, And uh, the the government certainly took part of that and put taxpayers as well uh, on the hook for his ambitions. So I think that um, when people think about Brazil and you know the corruption and the way so many fortunes are made through closeness to the government, people tend to treat it as though it were a uniquely uh, Brazilian problem. Um, but one thing I did while I was studying these characters in Brazil, I also started reading about the original tycoons in the United States in the 19th century. You know, Vanderbilt, Carnegie, and Rockefeller, and so on. Uh, and, I, you know, and I started looking at my own country and how power works here. And it, it occurred to me that what we see in Brazil is a, an extreme version of I think a natural tendency of concentrated wealth to try and seek to influence uh, government and to try to make markets less free. Uh, It's it's kind of like a dystopian version of what we see in other countries and I think the United States included Uh, and You know, I think of the example of Wall Street, say, Uh, much in the same way that the construction tycoons in Brazil, they would get along with whoever was in power and they would give money to left and right, anyone in a position to help them. Uh, We we see a similar phenomenon uh, with Wall Street, which supports... Democrats and Republicans, uh, you know, putting, it seems, convenience uh, for their own business uh, over ideology, say. Uh, And maybe what's most um, dangerous uh, about this impulse to try and change the rules of the game in one's own favor, uh, that is so common among these, uh, these figures, is that often there's a confusion of their own self-interest with the public interest. And I think, for example, of uh, a billionaire I interviewed once named Blaidou Maju. Uh, he is now the Minister of Agriculture at the time. He was a senator. His fortune comes from soybeans, um, an industry that's intimately tied to uh, the deforestation of the Amazon. Uh, and at the time that I interviewed him, he was the head of the Senate's Environmental Committee. Uh, and I asked him, do you think that there's any conflict of interest uh, between the fact that your family fortune comes from soybeans and the fact that you're the head of the Environmental Committee? And he said, absolutely not. In fact, a conflict of interest would be impossible because the interests of my industry line up perfectly with the interests of Brazil as a whole. It's Kind of like that old saying from Charlie Wilson about General Motors, that that what's good for General Motors is good for the country. Uh, But I think that uh, this this confusion of the self-interest with the public interest justifies influencing the rules of the game. Um, and, and I almost think it's, it's a natural instinct because once you have this kind of power and wealth, especially in a country like Brazil, but really anywhere, you have to find a way to justify that. Um, I, would, I would ask Brazilian billionaires, how does it feel to be so rich in a country this poor. When, Blight, when I asked Bledo this question, he said that, you know, his company, yes, he and his family owned it, but the results belonged to Brazil. Uh, so, you know, he, he felt no, it didn't make him uncomfortable. Aki had a similar answer, uh, that everything he was doing was for the good of the country. Uh, and, you know, I think it's hard to, li- it's hard to live at such a remove from the rest of your countrymen uh, that you need to create a narrative according to which your wealth is not only justified uh, but is good for everyone. Uh, so... I think that's it. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Uh, <clears throat> we hear now some comments by Joe Augusto de Castro Neves. He's the director for Latin America at the Eurasia Group. He has extensive experience in political analysis, advisory, risk and strategic consulting for high-level global markets, corporate energy, and government clients, both in the US and Brazil. Drau holds a doctorate in political science from the University of Sao Paulo, a master's degree from the Instituto Universitario de Pesquisas do Rio de Janeiro, and a bachelor's degree from the University of Brasilia. He has lectured at top US and Brazilian universities, and he has conducted research on Latin American trade and regional integration and Brazilian foreign policy. He and his team correctly forecasted President Dilma Rousseff's re-election in 2014, and they have have comprehensively covered the Lava Jato scandal that has engulfed Brazil. When in Brazil, he served as a legislative advisor in Congress and as a senior analyst at Instituto Brasileiro de Estudios Politicos. Please help me welcome Joao Castro de Neves.
2: Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and it's an honor, thank you for the invitation, and also to finally meet Alex, someone that uh, I've been following uh, some of his comments. And uh, it's a very timely book, I think, uh, You know, to talk about Brazil now. Uh, it's a very timely book, given the fact that we're seeing now in Brazil an enormous uh, crisis, uh, some would say unprecedented, if you look at uh, 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 the numbers or any way you cut it I mean uh, and Alex made some good reference in his book is very timely because it shows uh, a big example a very uh, a very uh, eloquent example of uh, what a boom and bust cycle can can do to you and uh, and put a face to it as well in the sense of the Aiki Bachista, uh being that face and now when you look at Brazil Brazil is going the last is undergoing last two three years through a very uh, uh, intensive I think a uh, political crisis uh, uh, needless to say uh, with the impeachment of a president uh, the second impeachment Brazil has had of last 25 years and also a massive corruption scandal uh, called Lava Jato or car wash that is uh, uh, hitting uh, uh, not only not only a, a large uh, sections of Brazil's political class but also the core of Brazil's economic development model uh, and on, on top of it all, we've had also uh, this uh, uh, very deep, this sharp economic recession in Brazil, a country that was has been growing, was growing a lot uh, uh, in the first decade of this century, uh, a, a lot of it due to, to the commodity cycle and some successful policies of the Lula government. Uh, suddenly, it, the growth came to a halt, and then we had a very sharp recession. In the last couple of years, what Brazil has had over the last two, three years is almost a, almost a lost decade in two or three years when it comes to economic growth. Uh, so there is definitely a boom and bust cycle there. Uh, I think, uh, and uh, once you read, uh, 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 and when you read Alex's book, I think you know you, you come to think that you know is this is this it right? is, is there hope? Is there any way out? Is this just another cycle? What's happening in Brazil today is just a manifestation of something that has it's been there for quite a long time, and you know as, as a Brazilian, I think I also have to have a little bit dose of optimism and think that it's not there's a way out that there's been underlying this kind of apparently cyclical uh, you know tragedy tragedy I mean in Brazil, I think history repeats itself as well, first as tragedy and secondly as strategy once again it's not far any uh, in any step of the way, uh, but I do think that there's some um there's some uh, uh, underlying there's some progress, some some uh, evolution and if you look take a step back and agreeing with with, with, with the great picture that Alex has, has, has done on the, the intertwining of, uh, of politics and, and economy in Brazil and business in Brazil and I think it's that that does really exist and has permeated a lot uh, uh, political political life in Brazil. I do think that if you look at the last 30, maybe 40 years, you know, there are some underlying trends that may give us a little glimpse of hope, right? And I would start with the, you know, the politics, right? I mean, of course, we've had, I mean, Latin America in general, I mean, a history of countries that have uh, struggled with democracy in the, the, throughout most of the 20th century, and Brazil is not. Of course, it, 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 Brazil is, is definitely uh, uh, in that category of a country that has had uh, very glimpses of democ- democratic, truly democratic rule in the 20th century. But we've had a process since uh, the, the late 70s, early 80s of uh, transition to democracy, right? Of political, of, of, of political stabilization, of the institutions growing stronger in Brazil. And uh, for example, now with the PT, well, the PT, out of the Workers' Party, out of power now, we closed the cycle since the country returned to democracy in '85. Of every major political force of, in Brazil has governed the country at one point or another. So if you look at, and this is important, this is a source of I think it's stability to some extent that you don't have the the kind of divisiveness that you may have in countries that are uh, that are a struggle with civil war or, or or things like that. So we've had uh, kind of this political evolution despite the problems, despite the 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 you know the 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 sometimes aggressive na- uh, narrative or rhetoric that you've seen in the streets, even on social media, Brazil's political landscape is a little bit more stable than meets the eye, and they can talk about that. And this happened in the 80s, basically, that return to democracy. So that was, a, I think, was, was a sign of evolution. Uh, the second one came the decade later in the 90s in the economy, right, Brazil's economy. Brazil likes to pride itself of being uh, the world uh, champion in soccer five times, uh, but also in the 90s was the world champion in inflation, right, hyperinflation. And uh, completely off the charts, literally off the charts, uh, inflation. And in the 1990s, this very coherent macroeconomic plan was put in place, the Real plan, uh, that kind of gave a little bit of rationality to Brazil's macroeconomic management, right? Even though you can argue that, you know, there's, you can move a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, the blueprint of a reasonable kind of a, a reasonable blueprint of macroeconomic management has been put in, put in place, uh, and the institutions that carry carry on that uh, that blueprint are relatively strong. The central bank, you have inflation targeting. You have, despite the deficits, you do have kind of a, at least the, the ways to measure and the metrics to, to see whether how much Brazil is is performing. Right, some other countries in the region don't don't even have that. Right, uh, they massage. Some of the numbers and indicators, so that's also a kind of a so it did elevate the debate, I think, in terms of the quality of macroeconomic management to a great extent. I mean, despite, of course, the the, the despite the, the the you know the difficult times, recent times when it comes to the Brazil's economy. And I think in the third pillar of kind of this, or the third underlying trend that may show that there's a, you know, it, you know, there's a, a glimpse of evolution. I think underlying these booms and bust cycle. Is on social policies, right? That came a decade later. So in the '80s, politics; '90s, economy; and the '2000s, the social—a cluster of uh, of uh, cash transfer programs and so and successful social policies that were implemented uh, by by the the PT government. Uh, parts of it already existed before. Uh, in fact, it's a curious thing to to mention here that in the 1990s, a big a big uh, a big uh, influence behind the. The macroeconomic stabilization plan was definitely the Washington consensus, right? Kind of the the ideas that came out of uh, uh, here of Washington of you know liberalize the economy, uh, have this coherent set of, uh, of macroeconomic policies, and privatize. There little it's not that much talked about that that Washington consensus debate agenda had a social side to it as well, which is. Alleviation of poverty through cash transfer programs, as well. The World Bank had talked about this, the benefits of this before. And Brazil actually not only started to test these ideas already in the 90s, but in the 2000s, when the when the left-wing party came, they doubled down on that agenda. Right? They expanded on that agenda. They've uh, you know they created one of the world's largest uh, called the Family Allowance uh, or Bolsa Família program, cash transfer programs. So that. Also, that had a major impact on Brazil's you know, social macroeconomic and social indicators right? You, had, you look at uh, uh, most social indicators of Brazil have improved over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, so looking at those three dimensions, right the politics, the economy and the social, you know, even though it's undeniable that we've had some signs of booms and busts, I mean underneath it all, Brazil is much better off than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago, right? Uh, so uh, so, the question is how where is the country heading right now is this and I think maybe adding a fourth pillar right to this uh, to these three that I mentioned would maybe be corruption right tackling corruption and and, and it 's not a coincidence that the lava jato scandal and much of, of the other scandals or not not even scandals, but just the way things were done uh, uh, th- this uh, this way things were done in Brazil. Is being challenged to the core, right? You look at the largest conglomer- construction conglomerates in the country, the state-owned companies like such as Petrobras, the National Development Bank BNDS, All of them are at the core of these corruption scandals. Uh, so, but even in the corruption, right? I mean, the problems abound, and I mean, you look at the numbers; they are massive uh, by any scale. Uh, but even there, I think there's a silver lining, right? Because Corruption, there's corruption everywhere, right? And I think that uh, and when you look at Latin America and a lot of emerging markets uh, in the last 10, 12 years, particularly due to the commodity boom, right? A lot of these countries, natural resource-rich countries, were flooded with liquidity, right? You had essentially the, the, the oil trading at above I don't know, $100 a barrel. Uh, you had mining, uh, iron ore, all these commodities, uh, the world buying, China basically buying it all. Uh, So this benefited enormously countries like not only Brazil, right, Venezuela, Russia, Argentina, among others. So the numbers of this became clear, right? I mean, you look at GDP growth of these countries, enormous. But there uh, there was also a political dimension to this, what we call the commodity super cycle, which is a political super cycle. This cycle generated very strong leaders across the board, right? Lula in Brazil. Chavez in, in Venezuela, Morales in 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 Bolivia, Putin in in Russia, Korea in Ecuador, and the list goes on. Uh, so this kind of this cycle, and, and you know, and these leaders with a lot of money, the, you know, they not only had a great dose of hubris when it came to their politics, their ideas, and and policies as well of intervening more in the state because they essentially they didn't need investors; they could do whatever they want. That's that's how they they thought. But also the, this money that that flooded a lot of these political systems created incentives for corruption, right? And that's where we are right now in Brazil, kind of the, the aftermath of that. Uh, the, the interesting thing is that when corruption, when the the, the commodity cycle receded, uh, you've, had, uh, you've had a lot of these countries that uh, did not go back to the way things were before because... You know, Middle classes in a lot of these countries in Latin America, they became much larger today than they were 10, 15 years ago. So this is something, this is a more of a demographic uh, structural shift, right? And what and how middle classes behave politically is much different from when they were not middle classes before. They, 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 they hold their politicians, their leaders, to much higher levels of scrutiny. So the challenge to a lot of these political leaders now in the, in the region particularly is how to deliver more in terms of better public services, et cetera. With less resources, given the slowdown of the economy, so this is a this is a predominantly political challenge uh, that a lot of these countries are facing. That explains a lot, you know, weaker uh, governments uh, or turnovers in the case of Argentina, where the Kirchners uh, lost the election, or more extreme scenarios like Venezuela. What's going to happen in Venezuela, right? Because you, there's no easy escape valve to solve that crisis. And in Brazil, it's kind of the middle of the way of finding a cons- constitutional means to remove a president that was democratically elected. Uh, so all in all, this is a very interesting political debate uh, that's going on in the region, but why, so where's the silver line in terms of corruption for Brazil at least? So why haven't uh, other major massive corruption scandals showed or, or, or you know, gained traction in other countries? Not because there aren't any, I mean there are. If you look at uh, the, uh, the wife of president of Mexico, corruption scandal. The son of the President of Chile, corruption scandal, the wife of the President of Peru, and the list goes on right You have a lot of different corruption scandals popping across in Turkey and other places as well in brazil and here 's the silver lining is that institutions because of this evolution that I mentioned institutions are are stronger in in Brazil than in a lot of other emerging markets and in in Latin America as well and one and out a pinpoint to one specific institution, which is the prosecutor's public prosecutor's office. In 1988, when Brazil became a democracy uh, again, returned to a democracy, uh, we had a new constitution, and that constitution granted a lot of autonomy, a lot of power to the prosec- public prosecutor's office, which now, in practice, became almost a fourth branch of, of power in Brazil. And that, in and since then, 1988, we've had a lot of corruption scandals. But each of these corruption scandals. The, the they brought they brought about after some some improvement in when it comes to, to legislation, when it comes to giving these prosecutors instruments to investigate. Right? So you've had scandals in the early 90s, you've had scandals such as the mensalao vote buying scandal early in Lula's years. And and you had an evolution of of, of legal tools that were approved that legislation that passed that kind of, you know, that brought Brazil closer to some of the standards that are practiced in other countries with many, many problems, many, many problems. But that's the silver lining. I mean, what we're seeing in Brazil today, I think, is is a, is a period of a very active judicial and investigative uh, 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 actors that are here to stay, right? This is a new normal in Brazil. So adding to those trends that I mentioned earlier when it comes to, you know, the the democratization of the country in the 80s the stabilization of the economy in the 90s and the and the consolidation of social policies in the 2000s i think what we're seeing now, you know and hopefully is is more investigations like this or more transparency when it comes to corporate governance becoming the new norm in brazil as well that would be the challenge for not only for this president who's in power right now michel Temer, but whoever wins in the 2018 election so to Change the way Brazil does business, and 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 you know, trying to challenge that idea that this is just yet another boom and bust cycle, that Brazil is is basically you know stuck in this model uh, of uh, of a crony capitalism or state capitalism or whichever way you want to frame it. Uh, I think that there are many many challenges. I, I do think that the silver lining, despite the near term cost of kind of trying to you know cleanse the country of a lot of these corruption uh, scandals. There is, of course, a, a cost to that process, given that all the major construction companies or major players in Brazil's economy are involved, some way or another. That will make uh, a economic recovery much, much harder. But I do think that uh, that you know, it's going to force a change. It's already forcing changes to policies and regulations that will bring, that will open up the country to the the country's economy to the world. Brazil is one of the closest economy that there, there is today uh, uh, in terms of trade as a percentage of GDP. For its size, that's a really big story, and that will bring new players to the Brazilian economy that will also, I think, improve corporate governance across the board and more transparency. You know, this is something that's definitely a, a, a topic for discussion, but... Uh, you know, so so what I think it's interesting about uh, Alex's book is that he kind of very clearly highlights all these challenges and, you know, weaves the stories of Aiki Bachista with kind of some of, uh, of of the origins of where does this, this has come from in Brazil. And, you know, I was mentioning to him earlier that that's the kind of book that I would like to written, have written some parts of it. They're really uh, really interesting to talk about Brazil uh, to to, to an a audience abroad, I think a country that is known to have some of... Uh, Peculiarities and being a lot of being very inward-looking, so sometimes it's hard to translate a lot of the terms. And Alex does a great job about it. Uh, But I think the best one that he does, and being from Rio originally, uh, myself a Carioca, is the the, is the definition of São Paulo. (laughs) Is uh, uh, São Paulo is what if New York, (laughs) New York vomited on L.A. So you know, as you know there's a big rivalry in in Brazil between Rio and São Paulo, so I love that definition uh, but uh, you know so I just essentially here I think uh, my you know I have many, many questions, but uh I would just like to hear also from from, from alex uh you know what do you, i mean do you think that there's hope i mean is, when you did your research i mean you saw you mentioned that you did see some parallels with other countries as well, the tycoons here in the u s and all this idea uh you know do you see that there's, you know, is it just another boom and bust cycle or does any hope? And, you know, thank you. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> thank you, João. And I see that you already posed the first question. So let's hear from Alex. here. Well,
1: João, it's, it's a great question. And um, I, I like listening to uh, you because, I, you know, it's important I think not to lose sight. As deep as the crisis is now in Brazil, there have been structural changes. And, you know, I think sometimes the way people talk about Brazil as if it were, you know, Venezuela, Um, and it's not. I will say that it's it's a challenge sometimes to be optimistic about Brazil. Uh, I turned in the first draft of my book in January of 2015, and continued to revise it over the course of the next year. And every time I revised it, I had to kind of moderate my optimism uh, a little more. Um, But, you know, I do do see uh, reasons for hope. And one of them is that these corruption investigations seem now to have a momentum of their own. I think it's it's early to say whether uh, they will lead to a change in the culture of impunity and uh, corruption in Brazil, but it seems like at least the country is on that direction. It may yet stray from the path, but at least it's on the path for now. Uh, and and certainly, you know, the fact that just 20 years ago malnutrition was widespread in Brazil and now the government can keep the 50 million poorest Brazilians at least from going hungry, it seems like a huge advance and is not one that is really uh, in check right now. So I, I, I guess I'm cautiously optimistic.
0: Before opening the floor for questions, I have one also, and is the, the, the whole discussion when, when you uh, listen to the political context where uh, Dilma was impeached, and compare it to the early 1990s where Fernando Color de Melo was impeached. Uh, the common characteristic is, two common characteristics is, well, there was corruption involved, or the, the discussion about corruption, even though President uh, Rousseff hasn't been personally uh, um, accused of, of, of participating in, in these corruption schemes, but also the economic downturn. There were, in both cases, a severe acute economic crisis. So the question is, is it, is it that, in this case, once again, we have the same case, the same phenomenon as in the early 1990s, that the president was impeached because the tolerance of the, popul- of the population towards corruption was low because of the economic crisis. Could it be the case that in the future the tolerance of Brazilians toward corruption is going to increase as long as the economic times, the economic good times, are back? You know, or as you say repeatedly in the book, you know, but. Tolerance towards corruption is high as long as politicians deliver, yeah, they pass Uh What do you think of that? Uh,
1: well, I saw an interesting graph not too long ago that showed a chronology of Brazilian history with uh, the GDP growth rate. And every time the GDP growth rate came down near zero or below zero, someone got chucked out of office so Gilma Rousseff in 2016, Collar in 92. Um, uh, João Goulart in 1964. Uh, I think um, uh, even Getúlio Vargas uh, in 1954. Uh, and as much as I think that uh, João is right to point out that the population of Brazil is evolving and becoming more middle class, starting to expect different things from its leaders. But it's impossible to separate uh, the outrage over the corruption scandal from outrage over the fact that the economy uh, started to tank and that this feeling that we're going to be a developed country pretty soon uh, started to kind of fade away. my hope is that at some point, the underlying and maybe slowly growing intolerance for corruption is going to be strong enough that people are going to demand uh, changes from their leaders even without an economic crisis. But I think, uh, you know, I think the the next year or two are going to be a test of that mm-hmm. um, because corruption investigations are ongoing but the economy has fallen so much it has almost nowhere to go but up at this point
0: what do you think you want to add?
2: no no I, I agree i think that there is some definitely some some you can make that correlation i think in terms of uh, tolerance towards corruption and and uh basically the, the politics as being a function of uh, of economic cycles but uh but again, I mean, there's kind of some changes, more structural changes that are also happening where you do see voter preference now uh, changing a bit more structurally. I mean, while whereas in the past, uh, you know, they were concerned about core economic issues mainly, right? I mean, jobs and income. Uh, these are still important issues, of course. But as they become better off, right, their, their, their preferences start to become focused more on uh, what we call the quality of life agenda, right, uh, education, healthcare, care, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, with respect to the crisis that Juma Rousseff faced, I think it's interesting to point out is that, I mean, this is a, con- a combination of, of factors that rarely align at the same moment at the same time, right? Some call this a perfect storm in Brazil where you have a massive corruption scandal, massive, with this very sharp uh, uh, recession, uh, multi-year recession, uh, fiscal problems as well, in addition to the recession, and a, a president that wasn't willing to play, you know, the political game as it should be played in Brazil. Brazil's political system is very complicated in the sense that you need to co- you need to to govern with a multitude of parties, right? And uh, and she wasn't willing to do it. And I think uh, as Kohler also wasn't able to do it in ninety two when he was impeached. And it's kind of you can argue that you know Brazil. everything that's peculiar to Brazil, and it's it's on the book as well. It's called Jabuticaba. It's a Brazilian berry that's original to Brazil. So anything that's very peculiar and baffling to Brazil, you call it a Jabuticaba. So Brazil's political system has a little bit of that. Um, on paper, it looks like the U.S. a presidential system, but how it functions is very much like a European parliamentary system. So what you can say that you know it was a vote of no confidence, to some extent. Was it avoidable? Yes, it was. If she if she had played by. know before you know sharing more power but you know I think it was a perfect storm
0: all right let's hear from you Uh, please raise your hand wait for the microphone and once uh, stand up and identify yourself and your organization we're gonna start here
3: I'm Leighton Roper I run a small investment organization so I'm kind of interested in what goes on everywhere in the world Alex, uh, you've done an extraordinary job of capturing the essence of Brazil and communicating it so effectively. I think it's amazing. Thanks. Um, I-, I guess my question, my sense is that there is a rising concern in Brazil about the quality of the health care and the education which systems which have been so integral to the way the country worked. <clears throat> and going back to the question of what of the cycles that have taken place and you've got the social one and will is there a chance that a broad cross-section of the people will make a connection between the shortcomings in education and healthcare and there may be others maybe infrastructure as well with the divide, diversion of resources into corruption And it seems to me that it has to be some sort of transformational leader who emerges to pull it together in a vision for change. Um, I I may not be up on my own U.S. history, but it's almost like a Teddy Roosevelt figure (laughs) needs to appear. Um, uh, But if you could comment on that, that would be very helpful. Thank you. Uh,
1: Thanks. And uh, great question. Um, And... What was interesting, in 2013, there was a massive wave of protests uh, in Brazil, and the, the precursor was a fair hike in public transportation, but really, they were expressing this kind of uh, uh, nebulous discontent uh, that had been growing, and the World Cup was coming up, and the connection that a lot of people made was, you know, why are we spending billions on stadiums when we have such urgent needs in terms of healthcare and education? People were making the connection openly. There was a sign uh, at a protest uh, that I remember vividly, uh, where it said, the money for education went to Odebrecht, which is one of these construction giants uh, is part of this big corruption scheme, although that corruption scheme hadn't re- been quite revealed yet. Uh, the money for uh, healthcare went to OAS, another of these construction giants. So I think I think people, you know, make the connection. It may overstate how much money is actually going into corruption, but I think it's, you know, the the broader point about politicians' incentives. Is right, you know, about who they're serving, um, and one thing that kind of worried me in when in the protests for Jilma's impeachment in 2015 uh, was to see the the discourse kind of change and people uh, placing the blame solely on the Workers Party. Uh, as if other parties weren 't involved, and as if these construction giants uh, and and you know and the billionaire families who own them also had no responsibility uh, i th- I think you know people people sort of you know put all of the problems of the country into the into the workers party when yes the workers' party uh, committed some grave uh errors and uh, you know, moral lapses, but it's not the root of all uh, Brazil's problems. Far from it. As for a Teddy Roosevelt-like leader, unfortunately, I don't think there's anyone really like that on the horizon right now. Um, but it is—it is a moment when everything is a bit up in the air because, uh, you know, the culture of impunity is changing, but the same old political establishment is still in power. But it could be that there's an opening for uh, new faces in the coming years. So far, though, as I say, no
0: clear indication of that. Let's not forget also the context. Uh, Transformational figures don't have a good history in (laughs) Latin America. Um, We're going to hear
4: from here. Thank you. Gerald Chandler from iTech Consultants. Could you comment on immigration? Is there any immigration or emigration, And is it any of it uh, illegal?
1: Is this question for or for me? Well, whoever wants to. Yeah. OK. Sure.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of similarities between Brazil and the US and I think one of them is you know both countries are considered melting pots right of uh, different uh, people from all over the world that uh, went to the both countries I think that one of the key differences between the two though is that while you know the US's door remained open to this day Brazil's door to immigration somewhat closed I think after the second World War uh, we have a lot of a lot of second generation. Uh, uh, in Brazil, for example, the current president, Michel Temer, is his son, uh, his father was from Lebanon. Uh, the previous president, uh, Juma Husef, her father was from Bulgaria. Uh, so you have the names, you have the largest, uh, uh, number of, uh, immigrants from, from, uh, Japan that have migrated to Brazil over, over hundred years ago, uh, Middle East, Italians, Germany. So there, there's a lot of people with, uh, different last names, let's say, in Brazil. But a lot of them are now like second uh, generation. Uh, I think there was a number that I've seen recently in The Economist that the the number of actual immigrants in Brazil today is below 1%. So that's pretty low. Uh, But there is starting, as Brazil started to have this boom in the economy in the last decade or so you know uh, there was a it became a force of attraction to a lot of immigrants many of which illegal coming from haiti where brazil leads a a u.n uh civilization uh, uh mission there and also from Bolivia and other neighboring countries as well, some African countries as well, speak, Portuguese-speaking African countries. So it's not a problem, nearly as large of a problem as it is here in the U.S. And some would say that you can also make that into a solution as well when it comes to attracting skilled labor as well from abroad. But uh, but it is, you know, so so there's this myth that Brazil is as open today as, as it was in the past because you have a multitude of faces and people of different colors and, and, and backgrounds. But it is, uh, it, it, there's no policy immigration policy to tackle these issues right now.
0: Uh, I have a question for you, uh, Alex. Uh, when you mentioned the uh, confusion that you uh, got a grasp of, which is the confusion between the public interest and the, and the private interest from uh, Brazilians, some of us will uh, interpret this confusion as uh, with the public interest and, and, and the private interest as a problem of big government, and not necessarily free markets uh, if you have a big government then of course there is incentive to towards getting some gra, some gra, grabbing some some kind of uh, prerogatives or privileges from that government whereas you have a limited government that's not the case. What would you say of that
1: uh, i I mean I would say that uh, you know we see it with Ibachista uh, uh You know, his his companies were helped along by the government, but were basically funded uh, by private investors. Uh, And he was able to create a bubble. At at his peak, the value of his companies was something like $50 billion. Uh, And he managed to destroy all of that value uh, in a very short time. And a lot of people lost money, uh, savers uh, and banks. Uh, So, you know, I think that in a country like Brazil, where there are few controls uh, or historically have been few controls on corruption, having a big state presence is a great opportunity to, uh, you know, carry out projects that don't really match up with the public good. But it's not something exclusive to that.
5: Arnold retired. Uh, I feel a fair amount of optimism about the future of Brazil, but there's a, a little cute expression Brazil: the Brazil is the country, of the future, and it always will be. The question is when will the future arrive, and I tend to think it is only when. The average citizen feels that it is his vote that put all of these politicians in power. And I get nervous thinking you need a transformational figure, because transformational figures too often, especially in South America, you think of the Codillo, who says, well, I'm in charge. Like Ike, I will do all of this for your country. Uh, It is. So I guess my question is, uh, and maybe mostly to Mr. De Castro Neves. Do you see the average citizens thinking it is their vote that put these people in power? And do they need to get more involved in making this change, not just getting rid of a president, uh, not just having the judiciary fire somebody, but it is their responsibility?
2: No, that's a good question. And I think that, uh, and I agree with you, that usually when you talk about strong leaders in the region, usually it's talk about a problem and not about a solution. I think that uh, in Brazil's case, that's why I focused a lot on the strengthening of institutions. I think the solution to Brazil comes through institutions and not through, you know, uh, father figures, right? That's been a traditional for for Latin America, you know, Vargas, Perón, or you name it, or more recent ones. Uh, But uh, I do think that uh, that's why when you look at what has happened in Brazil, despite all the, you know, very visible problems and, and and shortcomings that there is a sense of of uh, evolution there i mean of course i mean people are still they st- you know the fact that you have a, a broader middle class now brazil has been a very unequal uh, country for a long long time and and in 2010 the, for the first time in its history the middle class became the largest class in the country which was a sign of progress and as i said you know uh, even though there's there there their ways to go and how they feel entitled to some things that they should have. I think that there's a learning curve and uh, I do think that they increasingly so not sufficiently, but increasingly so they do feel that, you know, they, they they are a part of the solution, but again, you know, agreeing with Alex as well. I mean, when people went out to the streets in two thousand and thirteen to pro- protests, I mean, there was this middle class this disenchantment enten- with the political class in general. They did they didn't quite know what they wanted. They knew that they, what they didn't want, right? If you compare what ha- the protests in Brazil in two thousand and thirteen with uh, within, you know the Arab so called Arab Spring in, th- in the same year in, in the Middle East, is that was about government oppression. Right. In, in the Middle East. And Brazil is about government incompetence of not delivering what you know, basic goods services to these people. I do think that there's a progress there. And I mean, we've had a political crisis. Right. But I mean, there's but still the democratic rules of the game are still there. Right. I mean, the VP was elected as well as you know, had the same number of votes as the VP, as as the president. But uh, but yeah, but there's a great deal of disconnect, I would say. Uh but I don't know, I think that, uh, you know, I do see a glimpse of a, of a two steps forward, one step back kind of process that Brazil, Brazil is going through right now. And I think we've had a major step back in the last year or two.
0: We have one question right there, the gentleman in the back.
1: You alluded earlier to the Real Plan, which stabilized the the currency in the 90s, because one thing that Brazil has suffered from repeatedly is rampant inflation. I note that inflation is again starting. Um, what are the root causes of it? Are they going to be able to bring it under control?
2: Yeah, I, I, it's a combination of things, of, uh, of uh, the, the, the slowdown of the global economy with, uh, with uh, a number of uh, – Unsound macroeconomic measures that were undertaken over the last three or four years, uh, to some to as a solution, as a response to the crisis, the global crisis of 2008-9. Brazil tried to 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 respond to that, but it kind of exaggerated and didn't stop. Right. Uh, So I think it will Brazil be able to fix it. I think. uh, I think yes, but it's gonna be a very long process, right? I mean, you've had one of the problems uh, mentioned in the 88 constitution, there are a lot of positives to it, right? Of granting the public prosecutors a lot of autonomy. But the flip side of the coin is that they also, the constitution also granted a lot of rights, right? Not saying who's gonna pay for them, right? So Brazil has a very generous pension system, for example. So you need to fix those things. And it's not gonna be one or even maybe two governments. It's gonna be, we're we're headed into a multi-year process of transformation in brazil there's going to be there's going to be some some slippage there's going to be some problems there uh because the political class is not very uh you know the political class is has partially their hands tied but uh i don't think that it, the country's running out of control i think when you look at even when the economic crisis in the 1980s we're miles away from from what happened in the 80s for example right i think a new sort of problems
0: Over oh, there, the gentleman
4: Hi, my name is Ed Luzine with Adirondack Capital Management. Uh, I've been involved in Brazil since the early 90s. And uh, Alex, congrats on your books, on your book. I have two questions. One for Alex, do you have any positive um, experiences with Brazilian billionaires similar to like a Bill Gates here or you mentioned Carnegie and the way he built libraries across the U.S.? Has anybody done that in Brazil or do you see any inkling of people to even do that? And then my second question would be really for the three of you and more on Latin America as a whole. You look at some of the smaller countries like Chile, Panama, Costa Rica, maybe even uh, Colombia and Mexico that have done very well over the years, and yet you have Brazil, Argentina, and Venezuela as just basket cases constantly. Um, Do you see where there's any kind of, you know, attitude or or even competitiveness to get your act together and and do better? Thank you. Uh,
1: Thanks um, for that question. Uh, There was a billionaire I met uh, named Guilherme Leal. He is one of the co-founders of a company called Natura Cosmeticus, which uh, is a cosmetics company that uses ingredients from the Amazon, um, and I posed this question that I often pose, uh, you know, how does it feel to be so rich in a country this poor? And it, it was the only time that someone responded with any kind of self-awareness, and he said to me, I don't like it. It feels uncomfortable. I don't like to live at such Uh, you know, a distance from the rest of uh, the country. Uh, And, you know, he said, you know, if I had to pay more taxes and it meant that I would live in a more equal country, I would do it. Uh, And he does have some philanthropy uh, that aims at trying to change... Uh, the political culture uh, in Brazil. Uh, he's he's backed a presidential candidate who came close to winning uh, for a while in 2014, uh, Marina Silva, who has some kind of different ideas. I think you can debate, you know, what her success would be and, uh, you know, the value of financing politics but he he does at least seem to want to uh change the culture in brazil and sort of and he embraces the cognitive dissonance of being against the influence of billionaires like himself in politics and seeing that as his uh, main means to influence politics uh, for now but he was a he was a really interesting character
0: well, I will answer your second question. And I will say two words, economic freedom. If you look at the case of Chile, particularly, you will see that a country that was a basket basket, basket case in 1975 uh, with a brutal military dictatorship, uh, hyperinflation, or 500% inflation rate, 50% poverty rate, and so on, began uh, reforming its economy, began liberalizing its economy. It went from being one of the least uh, freest economies in, in Latin America to being the 10 freest in the world right now. And in the process, not only did it become the richest country in Latin America, the one with the highest social mobility, but also it became the soundest democracy in the region, from being a dictatorship to a democracy. And we can see that that's the extreme case of, 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 of Chile. In Latin America, we can see just the opposite with Venezuela. Venezuela was the wealthiest country in Latin America in the 1970s was the only electoral democracy in South America, along with Colombia in the 1970s. It was the freest economy of South America in the 1970s. But it began that downward pro- downward uh, trajectory when it comes to uh, uh, economic freedom back in the 70s. It was as intuited when Hugo Chavez came to power as a result in, 19- in the in late 1990s. And now we see the basket case that uh, Venezuela is. So if we look at economic freedom and We try to uh, separate these super cycles, uh, commodity super cycles that happen every now and then, uh, which give this fake sensation of well-being sometimes. Uh, We will see a pattern that those countries that have reformed their economies and bet on economic freedom have been, in the long run, more successful than those that have tried to foster growth through government interventionism. Uh, We have a, a last question, and that's the lady over here.
6: Hi, my name is Shen, I'm from Johns Hopkins Ice. Um Coming from Malaysia where there's a huge corruption scandal, I also share your optimism on Brazil. Um, but there are a couple of trends that, that were me and I'd like your comments on them. So I see an increasing polarization in Brazil um, in terms of voting between sort of the upper middle class and the lower middle class. Um, I also see a lack of options um, for good political governance, and we see that in the coming local elections, a lot of people who have been associated with corruption, who are in São Paulo, for example, um, they're leading the races. So I'd, I'd like to hear comments, on just um, from Joao and Alex, on the implications of the impeachment for local and national elections. Do you think we'll see a backlash against the PT or certain individuals? Um, and for the PMDB, what are the implications that we can expect? Thank you.
0: I will add that do we have to make a lot about the fact that some polls show that Lula will actually win uh, the election, the next presidential election, if he were to run. I'll bet. Yeah, you first, and then we finish with
2: the... Uh, I agree with your observation that the lack of options, I think that's something that we talked about a little bit here. And I do think that uh, this middle class discontent that we've been seeing hasn't translated yet into a new force or a new movement uh, 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 that's uh, maybe wait and and see, but I do think that that will delineate a bit the 2018 election of, uh, you know, uh, 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 it's likely to be a very fragmented and competitive election, right? Uh, uh, A lot of candidates, uh, and that's playing out a little bit in the municipal elections as well. That's going to happen in October this year. But uh, I don't see any major uh, new leader emerging, uh, and that could be a problem. Although, agreeing that I do think that it's much more about institutions that is it is about one or two person. Now, in terms of polarization, and I, I even though you see that the streets are polarized and social media is polarized, it's not an accurate reflection of Brazil's political system, which is very centralized, right? I mean, look at the current government coalition right now, Temer's coalition, 70% of it is exactly the same as Husev's coalition, right? Which 70% fell in the before, right? So so you have a big cluster of parties in the middle, right? And uh, and so even though you have a very polarized and, and, and aggressive narrative, narrative, I mean, of course, now you have the PT who was ousted pointing fingers at the PMDB, but take a step back and these two countries govern these two parties govern the country together for the last 13 years, together, right? It's not, one is not a victim of the other. They're partners in crime. crime. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: Final words, Alex.
2: Yes.
1: Um, I mean, I, I get the sense that uh, Brazil right now, it, it's, it's like it's running on two different speeds, and you have a part of the state you know, the judiciary and the prosecutor's office that has advanced more than the political class, especially the legislature. Um, And, you know, the fact that we're seeing the same names is is a reflection of of the fact that it's, you know, it's a slow process to try and change a whole political culture. Um, But, yeah, I mean, you know, hopefully... Hopefully, the country is going to get to a point where people uh, no longer vote for uh, the PMDB, uh, this great uh, you know, party of the center with no ideology except power. Uh, but it can't happen overnight.
0: Well, thank you very much for coming. We have copies of the book outside for you to purchase. And I, I think that Alex will have some time to sign some autographs. Believe me, this is a great book, so I highly recommend that you get a copy. And uh, please join us upstairs for lunch. And thank you again for, for joining us for this event.